2: Regardless of what you may have heard, Canada is not two solitudes, two peoples speaking two distinct languages, two cultures, English and French people in their own isolated bubbles. It is dozens of solitudes, dozens of communities, of nations speaking in different tongues. There are 600 recognized First Nations governments or bands in Canada, and most of the rest of us couldn't tell you much about them. We don't know them, we don't know their stories, we do not follow their politics, and we don't read their news. The news that we do get about them is the news that we report, when we bother to, which isn't often, usually when something awful happens. The stories that Indigenous people tell each other about themselves, most of us have never heard them. But now you can, if you want to, like for the first time really, it is really easy to hear these stories online. You can get them from gugues.com. Check the spelling on our website. That's a site for independent indigenous news from Atlantic Canada. You can read them on Ricochet, the crowdfunded progressive news site based in Montreal. They have an indigenous reporter. APTN, of course, uh, cbc.ca slash aboriginal. The Indian and Cowboy Podcast Network. Vice is debuting a new TV show that is all about indigenous people in Canada and around the world. Indigenous media, much of it independent Indigenous media, is proliferating all across Canada. And for today's show, we have assembled a panel of journalists and storytellers from all of the aforementioned sources. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Bill Pegler, Justin Station, Dasha Katova, Giselle Kine, Ryan Bianchi, Janine Gilliner. Kevin J. Barron, Dexter Fergie, and Ryan Wahlberg. Ryan, why did you decide to be awesome?
3: Because Canalline takes a sharp look at Canadian media, which I appreciate, and it provides unbiased news I can't get anywhere else.
2: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. At BetterHelp.com/CanadaLand. That's BetterH.E.L.P.com/CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than two hundred thousand Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there. A lot of mattress liars. Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer. And this episode is also brought to you by Camptech.ca. Camp Tech provides workshops for grown-ups who want to learn how to do computers better. So, what this is are half to full-day workshop courses. Courses where you learn really practical stuff, hands-on workshops where you learn how to build an online store, or you learn how to get the most out of Google AdWords or, or Google Analytics. You can learn how to do social media better. A lot of people figure, well, like, what do you mean a course on social media? I just do that. You don't need to learn that in a class. Actually, if you're using it for professional purposes, there is a lot you can learn to maximize your impact by learning in a classroom. And of course, you know, you can learn this stuff a lot of different ways. You can just Google it. You can click the help button. If that's the way that you learn stuff, go for it. It's not the way that I learn stuff. I like to get some instruction. I like to do hands-on, but I don't have the time to take night school courses week after week after week. Camp Tech lets you come in, spend a half day or a full day and really intensively learn how to do this stuff. Camp Tech offers workshops in Toronto, Ottawa, and Vancouver, and I really think that part of the draw is that you're going to be learning with like other cool people, people who are building their skill sets, or people who have their own small businesses. It's a great place to network professionally. might also be a good place to network socially. I asked Camp Tech founder Avery Swartz if her classes are good for networking or for hooking up.
4: We purposefully limit our class size. We keep them to max 20 people so that it creates a really small, fun environment where you can really get to know the person sitting next to you. And also, you know, at Camp Tech and, you know, life in general, we think that the more you're having fun, the more you're enjoying yourself, the more you're going to learn and hopefully retain some of that information. So we try really hard to make it a fun environment, have a good time. You know, it's kind of nerdy, but it doesn't have to be boring.
2: There are going to be, like, marriages and companies that launch based on the
4: associations. Oh, my gosh. I've heard about um, a couple of people that took a Camp Tech workshop in Toronto. This is like, a year ago. They went on a date afterwards. No joke.
2: <laughs> you
1: should try that extra. Don't,
4: I don't know what happened after that,
2: but they totally went on a date. <laughs> Classes start at just $85. Go to camptech.ca for more information. This episode is also brought to you by Giftogram. While we are talking about hooking up, let's talk about Giftogram because Valentine's Day is upon us. Have you not bought your Valentine's Day gift or gifts yet? Have you been putting this off? If you've been putting this off, why not cross it off instead? Just get it done. Too often, I think gift giving becomes this big drag. You feel this obligation to go on some massive retail hunt. You don't. You can just download Giftogram to your iPhone or your Android device. They have done that legwork for you. They have hunted down great gifts at every price point. And the way it works is you download the app, you pick the gift, and you just select who you want to send it to from your list of contacts. And that's it. It's done immediately they get an email letting them know that you bought them a gift. So it's actually really good for last minute Valentine's day shopping, because even if they don't get the gift that day, they'll know that you bought them one. Or if you order it now, it'll probably arrive in time. It's three to five day shipping time. Now here is something you absolutely will not get at a retail store, $20 towards whatever you want to buy. If you use the offer code CanadaLand, they will just credit $20 towards your first gift purchase. I've got my eye on these very cool-looking copper mugs, also a very handsome French press set from Le Creuset. I'm a man of delicate and refined tastes. You can check out all of this stuff at Giftogram, offer code CanadaLand.
4: Okay, my name is Maureen Gugu. I am a Sebaganagadi band member from the New Brook First Nation in Nova Scotia. I have been working in the media since uh, 1987, when I was 18 years old. I've worked for publications such as Micmac News, The Chronicle Herald, I've worked for CBC Radio, and uh, ran the Halifax News Bureau for APTN National News for six years. Currently, I'm the owner-editor of my own news website called com, which covers Aboriginal news in Atlantic Canada.
0: My name is Lena Menifee, and I'm the editor for Ricochet Media. I help run the Indigenous Reporting Fund, but I've also worked for APTN National News and CBC in the past. As well as done video and film.
5: Ani, my name is Wabija Grace. I'm from Wasaxing First Nation. I live in Ottawa and I work for CBC Ottawa and I also contribute to CBC Aboriginal.
1: Bonjour, uh, my name is Ryan McMahon. I'm a stand-up comedian, writer, and media maker based out of uh, Treaty 1 territory. Um, I live in Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba. I'm the chief creative uh, producer at Indian & Cowboy, and uh, I podcast at uh, redmanlaughing.com.
3: Tanse, I'm Jared Martino, Cree uh, Dene from Frog Lake First Nation in Alberta. Uh, now living in Toronto, run the indigenous music site Revolutions Per Minute, rpm.fm, and am producing a doc series on indigenous issues for Viceland, the new Vice cable channel that's launching in February. Thank you all very
2: much. Jared and Maureen, thank you for being here in the studio. And the rest of you, thank you very much for finding the time to talk with me from where you are. I want to start by reading an email. Jesse, we need you to do a piece on our community. The media won't talk about it. We tried, but we are hemorrhaging our young 20 to 30-somethings like mad because of the old boys club and the dirty politics that are played. I know there's a sensitivity to First Nation communities in Canada and what they're going through. I know it intimately as I'm a First Nations person, but what is happening in our community is wrong. Jesse, I know there will be backlash from people saying that you're picking on First Nations but if you can get, and then there's a suggested uh, First Nations journalist, uh, to do a show, then we as First Nation people will speak for ourselves. Please respond as soon as you can. I feel like this email that we received kind of encapsulates a lot of the tensions and issues surrounding what we're going to be talking about today, which is Indigenous representation in Canadian media. Who should be telling these stories? Should they be told within communities? Is it, is it the business of people outside of these communities? Tell me what you think I should do with this email. Tell me what you would do with it.
4: I would jump in and say, can you forward that email to me? I'll cover it.
2: <laughs> that's Maureen speaking.
4: <laughs> Sorry. that's Ma- Yeah, I'm Maureen. <laughs> that's my reaction. As soon as you read that, I was like, who is this person? Give me the email. Let me look at it. <laughs> well, it doesn't
2: look like it's a media story, so I might, I might ask them if I can do just that.
0: Um, this is Lena from Ricochet Media. I would say that there is a reluctancy and a hesitancy from indigenous journalists, including myself, to get involved with First Nations internal dialogue and politics. Um, When I was working for CBC, I was told a lot of the time that I couldn't cover stories because they were inside arguments and kind of inner disputes that nobody would be interested in. Uh, on a national way or in a provincial way so there is sometimes a self-censoring um but there's also sometimes if you're working for a bigger mainstream audience which i'm not anymore a hesitancy to be like are regular canadians going to care about this and then also there's a little bit of familial pressure to be like well if that's my nation say that you're talking about and we find out it's from kakatla How much of your dirty laundry do you want to air to the public as well? Or can you cover it in an objective way? Is it better for you to do the story or maybe getting somebody else who's indigenous from a different area to do the story?
1: Uh, This is Ryan. Uh, I'll leave the journalism up to the journalists uh, here on the panel. Uh, However, with stories like these, where you do hesitate to uh, uh, look at telling the story uh, because of the type of story it is, I guess I would look at uh, your work around uh, Furlong. And um, the type of story that was, a necessary story to tell, a difficult story to tell, but one that I think obviously is worth it to give a voice to these people, at least to have them have a chance to tell their story. And we see with the type of... Um, legislation being passed in Canada around uh, transparency and First Nations, around funding and these types of things. Nobody wants crooked people out of their community, offenders out of their community, people that are doing wrong in the community. Nobody wants them out of the community more than the community. So, you know, I think that an effort to tell these types of stories inside our community and outside of our community, it should be there. It's, It's very important
2: are these stories being covered and told within communities at a level that the mainstream media and, and maybe even social media is is oblivious and blind to? Uh, because it seems like when you do have corruption in leadership, that there's sort of no more pressing case for journalism to come and expose that so that people can be better served.
0: Can I jump in for a second, though, if we're talking about corruption? I just want to throw in there that when you look at non-native governments, that the corruption rates are about 15% or so when it comes to non-native governments, and they're quite low with First Nations and Indigenous governments. they are about like 6 or 7% of corruption, and the mainstream news has really been kind of pushing this idea that corruption is, is huge in our areas, and I mean, of course you want it covered, and it should be covered, and there should be, of course, justice. But it's really hard when people keep looking at that and keeps getting pressed down, especially with the First Nations Transparency Act and and all these things that, oh, this is a huge issue in, in communities. Yeah, of course, it's a huge issue with colonization. It happens in you know African villages. It happens in Native American villages. It's happening here. But we have a, a percentage increase of. Governments and politicians at every level Municipal, provincial and federal That are kind of doing those things too That people won't report on in the mainstream news On themselves So yes, it's very important to do It's really hard to do though And get people to speak up about it Because there's such a a condition of silence in our communities
4: Lena brought up a couple of things And they kind of... Um her, her experience in working in the mainstream media and trying to pitch Aboriginal news stories, her experience is very similar to mine. When I worked started working in the media, you know, I was really young. I was in my, you know, late teens, early 20s. And I was taught that you get your story ideas from what interests you. Well, for me, I am a Mi'kmaq person. I'm from a Mi'kmaq community. Of course, issues that affect my community interest me. So I tried to pitch those stories and I was told the same thing from producers and editors that those stories were too internal and that they would never appeal to a mainstream audience and I got that constantly no matter where I worked and which is probably one of the reasons why I left mainstream media to work at APTN when I did because working there was a gift because I actually got to cover aboriginal news on a full-time basis and I got to pitch those kinds of accountability stories and I got to cover them you know and the best thing working with APTN is that I didn't have non-aboriginal editors or producers telling me what's interesting in my communities I got to make that determination
2: this I guess speaks to the larger question that underrepresentation is one problem but misrepresentation and negative representation is another the Truth and Reconciliation Commission actually had words for the media, and and uh, the report said that the historical pattern persists, there's been little change since uh, 20 years ago when it was last looked at, and this is a quote from the report: Media coverage of Aboriginal issues remains problematic. Social media and online commentary are often inflammatory and racist in nature, um, and I think about the CBC closing the comment section entirely on any story having to do with in- Indigenous issues at all. Is the answer then media for Indigenous communities and by Indigenous communities?
4: I mean, when APTN first came on the scene and formed its own um, newsroom, one of the philosophies that uh, the editors and the producers had was that we were going to cover news stories that interest us. And if non-Aboriginal audiences, you know, wanted to watch they can watch and observe like in a circle on the outer but in the end we were the ones who would be determining what is interesting in our communities and i love that philosophy while i worked there it was great and it's a philosophy that i've carried on into my own news website googlequest.com
5: Just to speak to your first point there, um, I think uh, the divide between Indigenous communities and the media has been largely created by the mainstream media in Canada because traditionally what happened was on a daily news assignment, um, the mainstream media would essentially parachute in to cover a tragedy, right? And they wouldn't bother to stick around to foster any sort of relationship or even do any sort of effective follow-up. So what's happening now, I think, is that the mainstream media really has to catch up and is trying to go out into the communities to meet the real people and tell the real stories about some of the ongoing important things that have happened there. Uh, and it's it's, it's going to take a long time for a lot of those communities to trust the mainstream media once again, just because of ongoing years of, of, of just covering tragedies, right? Um, so... I think we're slowly getting there, like from our perspective at CBC, we've been able to um, put more efforts into the CBC Aboriginal site and do more meaningful stories from the communities, mostly within cities, right? Like the, the, that's the, our greatest sort of detriment is that we're localized in urban centers and we don't get out to the communities as often. But luckily, you know, we have social media and we have other indigenous led media that's um, really sort of really started a fire within you know our, our young people and making sure that they tell the essence of of their own personal stories and make sure that they teach the rest of Canada who they really are and what their communities are all about. So um, it's really, I think it's it's interesting to see mainstream catch up with some of the independent Indigenous media that are really leading the way and speaking the truth.
2: Jarrett, you are a prolific uh, contributor to social media, talking about a lot of this
3: stuff. (laughs) Uh, What do you think? I mean, I I guess to go back to like an earlier point that was raised, like increased representation unto itself doesn't solve the problems based on the kinds of representations that, you know, that we're receiving and that part of that self-representational work I think goes a pretty big distance in terms of the kinds of stories that we're able to generate from within. But I think to limit those conversations only to like the internal conversation, the for us bias is a huge part of the corrective to that misrepresentation, but it shouldn't end there. And I think that kind of while I was getting at, at that a little bit in the sense that I feel like... There's been some important movement that's happening now into some of the mainstream spaces in terms of having some of those narratives become more frequent, um, being able to kind of have different kinds of stories be able to told in those mainstream platforms. But it has to happen like in tandem with the work of doing that representation on our own, because I don't think we can look to whether it's Leonardo DiCaprio or Wab and a handful of other, you know, indigenous journalists that are working within the mainstream media that exists, say, even in Canada as the like sole um, carriers of all of those stories. It's, like, so much to ask of those mainstream media to, like, to be able to do that for us. So we need to be all able to do that ourselves as well. So I think that those things working concurrently, um, and while we're speaking to this, they can start to inform one another. And I feel like the, the strength of Indigenous independent media is that it can actually start to drive some of the mainstream news agendas in ways that um, that weren't happening in its absence.
2: Thinking back on what Maureen was saying about the, the uh, assigning editor or producer saying no one's interested in that, I always look askance when mainstream media and when non-Indigenous people cover this stuff for the reason that what is this going to be? And it's always going to be either it's going to be a finger wagging or it's a pat on the head or it's uh, compassion trolling. <laughs> There's just all these modes and none of them f- are fit very comfortably. And they, I, I feel indicted by them. I don't want to pursue the stories myself, but then you're not pursuing the stories. So what the hell? Do you the stories to me are much more interesting. I'm much more engaged by a story if it is – an internal conversation or a conversation, a report by indigenous people and for indigenous people. So I don't know if that actually starts to solve that problem. And, you know, ultimately it does matter if you get the clicks, if people give a damn, if people read it and those metrics, especially, I mean, Maureen, you're running a, not a dissimilar crowdfunded, you know, independent news site. If people don't pay attention, it's not going to work.
4: That's true. But I think in, in the Atlantic region, it's very unique. There is no aboriginal reporter working in mainstream media other than my former colleague Trina Roach. We're the only two who are actually covering Aboriginal news in the Atlantic region. There is no one Aboriginal beat at any media outlet at the CBC, at the Chronicle Herald, at Global News, at the Telegraph Journal. It's a bunch of general assignment reporters chasing news of the day. Hopefully one of them might be an Aboriginal news story, but they're not doing it full time. So there is this huge gap. And for me, there's so many stories that are going on in the Atlantic region. Sometimes I get ov- overwhelmed by the number. You know, you, you want to cover them all and it's really difficult. But I, I feel like my site is um, is answering a need there. I mean, one thing about the communities in the Atlantic, especially, they're, they're very active on Facebook. They love sharing news stories about their communities and I think they appreciate the context that these issues are being presented to them that someone's taken a time to look at it, look at an issue analyze it and then tell them this is what is interesting and this is why you should care I think they appreciate that and I'm hoping in the coming months that they see the real value of having an independent aboriginal news source in the region and that they will support it Technology
2: keeps coming up here. It's central to what you do. Lena, it's central to what Ricochet does, the, the funding model and the news gathering model, uh, the ability to actually document what's happening in one's community and then talk about it via social media or, or spread the word or work with journalists in, in cities. And yet we're talking about communities for whom uh, access to technology, internet speeds, the cost of internet access, this is, it's really problematic. I mean, this is where the digital divide still exists. Is that is that a wall that you guys run into in trying to tell the stories you're trying to tell?
0: Technology is definitely part of it. In B.C., we have 271 villages. It's in over like 38 languages. And so it's a huge amount of territory to cover. And so when Maureen was talking about being overwhelmed by stories, there's people who are overwhelmed here, every Indigenous journalist in B.C., covering things that are happening every day. APTN only has one person that covers the West Um, west coast essentially stories so as far as the technology divide goes we still have in bc that's 58 percent of people who aren't hooked up to broadband facilities in nunavut you're looking at 59 percent that aren't hooked up at all to internet of any sort when you look across the border in the states it's like 90 percent of native american communities have no access to high speed so like how are we going to like push past that and the thing is is like people are starting to pick up smartphones i think smartphones are more of a priority for people to have now than, say, like a stereo or a car. And so the smartphones and having access to Tumblr and blogs and news and social media has really been changing, I think, how all journalists, whether they be Native or non-Native, are are actually getting into Indigenous stories. I think almost 80% of the people who are visiting my website
4: are doing so on an Apple iPhone. Uh Uh-huh. And the second second device, an iPad.
2: Wow, that is uh, very different than our traffic, I can tell you. Des- desktop is still more than 50% of our traffic. That's very interesting.
4: Yeah. So I, I, I find that really insightful. So it's, it's, you know, those stats have told me that I really need to make sure that my site is very user-friendly to people with smartphones.
2: To what extent was Idle No More or is Idle No More something that has been fueled by technology? And that has been made possible by technology.
3: Oh, man. There's (laughs) there's a lot to be said about that. (laughs) I feel like we made a lot, and a lot was made of the role of technology at the time, like probably more than it needed to be, like as though Native people for the first time ever discovered that there was this thing called social media. Um, like, But there was this huge wave of, of presence and conversation and stuff that was happening on those platforms that hadn't congealed really in the same way as it did during that time. But I feel like that was the jump off. That was like really just the jump off toward the different kinds of connections that evolved since then. And it wasn't really about it was never really about the platform or about the technology. The technology was like incidental to the other currents that were kind of driving that, the other motivations that people had for wanting to engage a larger public in those conversations. So to me, like it flows from that. It's not, it's not, there's a lot of, I think too often it gets put on like a, a platform specific thing, like because of Twitter, we have, I don't know more or whatever, like fine. It started as a hashtag, but it started in response to something else. that just found life in that space as a way to galvanize other things to happen.
0: It would be like saying, well, because of uh, round dances we have Idle No More. So I exactly. love that. I love that <laughs> people are able to mix ceremony and technology and just adapt technology to their needs and, and still keep it with Indigenous perspective. So
5: Thinking back to that time, from my perspective, um, working in daily news, because the Idle No More activity was was measurable on social media, it actually helped me pitch I don't know more related stories I would take like a tweet that had been retweeted you know a couple hundred times and show it to one of my assignment editors and show say hey look you know there's something um really active happening in our city and a lot of people care about it and then she'd say go ahead and go cover it today then so yeah going back to what Jared said you know it's not because we discovered this new fire or something like that that I don't know more became what it was but you know in terms of in terms of getting coverage I think it it Definitely helped eventually, you know. I, I think everybody knows that mainstream media really dropped the ball covering Idol No More in the beginning. But once it finally caught up, um, social media definitely helped um, uh, cover those stories a little comprehensively and, and a little more in depth.
2: Has anything changed or is anything changing? And you could you could kind of like do a one-two trend thing. You can look at... Trudeau and his commitments that he's made. You could look at the fact that missing and murdered finally uh, seems to have uh, gotten the attention of the media and, and investigations have been done, are being done. You can look at truth and reconciliation. You can look at the fact that uh, the Globe and Mail has an indigenous journalist internship that was just announced. You can look at the fact that CBC, for whatever, there are people who think they made the right or the wrong call in turning off comments, but at least they're paying attention to the fact that there's this virulent racism that takes over their comment sections. Is there a watershed moment? It has something given in, in people's willingness to hear these stories and the media's willingness to pursue these stories and tell them. Uh, Ryan, do you want to uh, start us off?
1: Uh, I don't know if we're at a watershed moment yet, um, but I will say that it's very encouraging the type of discourse that's happening right now in mainstream media around reconciliation. I don't know what I expected around the uh, time that the final report was, was dropped by the TRC, but I was encouraged by the type of reporting that was happening, specifically with, with who the uh, many of the mainstream outlets were talking with. I was on an airplane one time and... and opened up the Globe and Mail and in there, I think three quarters of the article that I read were, were quotes and conversations with survivors. And, you know, that was impressive to me. So I, I I don't know if we're at a watershed moment yet, but I'm I'm encouraged. I still have my guard up, um, but uh, my gun isn't loaded, so to speak. I'm, I'm encouraged.
4: I don't know. For me, the TRC, it kind of um, flowed into the Nova Scotia government's decision to make Mi'kmaq Treaty Education a priority and that they're implementing it in all schools from primary to grade 12 to their public service. It's like they finally realize that the Mi'kmaq history of Nova Scotia is all of Nova Scotians' history as well. If you're non-Aboriginal, the Mi'kmaq history of the region is your history as well. And it's really encouraging to see the TRC Commission come up with that you know, recommendations that more should be taught about the residential schools. And then we have a provincial government saying, you're right, we should be teaching all of this to everybody. So, you know, starting in the fall, you know, within 20 years, we're going to have a complete generation who's going to know about my history, Mm
0: -hmm. about
4: my people's history in the territory of Mi'kmaq, And that really makes me happy, you know, that, that that's going to happen. And hopefully those issues of racism, of misunderstanding, I'm not going to say it's going to go away, but it may be less and less.
0: I uh, I agree with Maureen. It's it's exciting to see that Canadians are starting to get this information. And I think it's the mainstream's job in a lot of ways to to actually get across and translate what the TRC means uh, entirely to the country. It's interesting It's a whole other subject that the TRC here was kind of enacted by a court decision, not because the public demanded it, like South Africa, so a part of the mainstream role there is to get people to care and kind of get the public to care kind of post-TRC. I'm just a little concerned that the TRC recommendations, the things that we really need to discuss, like health in our communities, education, and as far as like a settler and non-settler relationships with First Nations in, in areas and the environment – if it's not sexy, it's not going to make the mainstream media for a long term. And that's kind of my hesitancy, like Ryan saying, like, I'm, I'm not too sure if I I know if it's a watershed moment yet, because I don't know if health is indigenous health specifically or indigenous incarceration rates or justice is going to be uh, long term uh, interesting to Canadians.
3: I would say one footnote on that too is, Jared, like if part of the watershed moment is also the complete closure of comments on CBC stories related to Aboriginal people, then it's not only like a change necessarily in a positive direction.
2: Just the idea of a closure of comments is a pretty concerning idea. Uh, Are you of the opinion that it it would be better to know just how much hatred there is out there and see it then to close those comments or where or, or do you feel like more moderation? What do you think they should have done?
3: I mean, it's not that I necessarily contest the decision like in terms of opening or closing comments because I think across the board comments are, I mean, there's, you know, like that sort of whole, it, I, to me it feels like an old adage now to be like never read the comments because kind of regardless of what the story is, you look at any YouTube video, you look at any most mainstream media sites, I mean, CBC is a repository of that, that kind of commentary regardless and it's like particularly acute when you're talking about indigenous issues but to me the the, like the selection of it being only on those kind of stories is indicative of like the larger the larger problem which is about the kind of persistence the willingness with which most Canadians still feel like completely at home and at peace to be able to air that kind of racism toward our people that to me I don't think has changed at all and I feel like that's just as entrenched as it is with or without CBC making visible those comments or not that that's still there
0: Some of these ideas are still being reflected in mainstream media. If you looked at Ezra Levant and John Gormley and these pundits from Calgary Herald and National Post, there are people who are mainstream journalists and writing opinion editorials that say just as harsh or bad things, it doesn't take the public in comments. Uh, mainstream media still likes that kind of sensationalism.
2: Well, and, and you know, uh, Ryan brought up the furlong case before, even just sort of by omission, the, the different ways, the different types of, of uh, allegations are dealt with, and the way that the media has a very different reaction to different people saying very similar things. Tells you how little has changed. I, I wonder, you know, Lena, to your earlier, you know, suggestion that has something changed or is this just a moment? And the media does tend to kind of pick up on things for a while, get very excited about them, and then consider them, you know, done. A lot of the things beyond the kind of immediate question of what happened to these women, beyond the immediate question of, of uh, the, the release of a report that has certain language that is very evocative for a news report, looking at colonialism, looking at, at, at uh, the, the idea of being thought, thinking of yourself as a settler, looking at a situation where you might actually have to give something up, it makes people feel in ways that they don't want to feel. People don't want to feel responsible. They don't want to feel culpable. They might be concerned or have some compassion, but taking that to the next step is not a place that is comfortable. And I think that the, the overflow of racism you see on the comment board I think is just the extreme expression of something that is felt in a mainstream sense. I wonder if That is something that people are willing to actually look at and address in any kind of sustained or meaningful way.
4: Maybe I'm a really jaded journalist for, for, you know, when I think about mainstream media, but I'm at a point in my career in my life where I just don't care. What mainstream media, <laughs> what what they find interesting anymore, because I've got my own website. But what I about get to mainstream decide. Canada?
2: <laughs> Do you care about what mainstream Canada thinks, or are you, are I, you speaking to I care to about different what my
4: community finds interesting. Uh-huh. Th- those are the stories I want to tell, and those are the stories I'm going to try to tell on my website. Whether mainstream media wants to follow my stories, that's their choice. But at this point, I mean, I've dealt with mainstream media long enough to realize that, you know, these questions you're answering, I've been hearing my entire career. (laughs) You know, like I said, I'm at the point where I don't care. I'm going to do my own thing.
1: Can I can I just add one thing to this? This part of the conversation? This is Ryan. Yes, Ryan. The comment sections sort of highlight, as, as Jarrett was saying, sort of highlight that overarching racism in Canada that we all like to close our eyes and pretend, you know, it doesn't really exist here. This is generally thought of as a, a kind place. You know, we apologize when we cut in line in front of each other and we, we help each other dig our cars out of snowbanks and everything. At Indian and Cowboy and, and with my podcast specifically over the last five years, my comment section on my website um, – does reflect the hatred and at times you know has ha- has been bombarded with uh, i'm sure it's a small group of people uh leaving comments but it's brutal the types of things uh people say and and I travel for a living in in communities and and tour as a as a comic in this country and uh, I always say if you want to take the pulse of this country start an idle no more uh protest at rush hour in any city across Canada, and then tape um, uh, tape recorders under the, the tables of Tim Hortons uh, hit record and just listen to the conversation after rush hour, and, and you'll take the temperature of this country real quick. And I think that independent Indigenous media, CBC Aboriginal, RPM.fm, and all of these places that push back against that is valuable. But I, I, I agree with Lena uh, with what she said about you know, mainstream media starts, they have to have these conversations in their own spaces because we've been talking about this for, for, uh, decades and, uh, it it gets real tiring.
5: The underlying issue contributing to that is a lack of representation in, in mainstream media newsrooms, right? Mainstream outlets just aren't recruiting and retaining enough Indigenous journalists to keep that conversation going in a constructive and a really meaningful way, I don't think. And as a result, yeah, you're seeing a poor reflection as uh, in the final product of, of what's delivered you know, online and on the air and, and in print. So until there's, there's a better representation in mainstream media and newsrooms, you know, that, that the racism is just going to proliferate.
2: It's interesting, Maureen, for, for you to talk about being a jaded journalist. While that's sort of a cliche, how jaded can you be if you think that storytelling matters and that telling these stories actually has an impact? Everything we're discussing today is, is about stories, who gets to tell the story, what stories are being told. You put that up against realities, communities that have Just tragic uh, rates of teenage suicide, food scarcity in the north. There's just tangible, real problems, drinking water. It just goes on and on. Are we just sort of like messing about with an – like storytelling? Is this really where the emphasis should be when we're talking about real lives and we're talking about immediate problems and human beings suffering – I mean I guess you got to be a true believer in journalism to think that storytelling is actually important in that context.
4: Well, I should probably amend what I said. I'm probably a more jaded person. <laughs>
0: <laughs> than a jaded <cheated> journalist. <laughs>
4: <laughs> because I really do care about journal- aboriginal journalism and aboriginal storytelling and, te- and getting those stories out there. I mean, those types of stories is what I thrive on. And, and what I, you know, I love sitting down with people at the kitchen table with a cup of tea and some loose skinny and talking to them about their lives. It's great having those conversations and it's great trying to get to tell other people about these wonderful people who live in these, you know, these aboriginal communities.
1: I can speak from uh, the point of view of Indian and Cowboy and what we're doing there and, you know, making space for uh, indigenous voices to share stories And making space for those conversations for people to, you know, uh, listen into or to be a part of, to interact with those with those people uh, creating our podcasts at Indian and Cowboy is really valuable. We have people from teachers from grade schools, uh, high schools, universities. We have Ph.D. students and all kinds of people emailing us about the types of things we're doing there and essentially saying we had no idea. I didn't know about this. I was never told this. Uh, is this true? And, uh, and without space for storytelling, which I think is the most human thing uh, uh, there is, is to sit down and talk to each other. Without those conversations happening, both online and, and in real life, uh, I don't know how there's a way forward. So I think absolutely storytelling is, is essential to this thing that we're now calling reconciliation and uh, a good, healthy pathway forward
3: in Canada. Jarrett, that we're still in this weird position of having to like claim the legitimacy of the indigenous story, like as though that's something that we need to prove to people, like it's a story that is worth telling. And like I've been thinking about this a lot, both in the Canadian context. But then if you pull focus back to like a global perspective, like indigenous people, obviously, there's certain stories that are about the inherited legacy of the structural stuff that we've had to deal with over time since invasion, since colonization, et cetera. But then like on the flip even though I don't really see time in an exactly like linear way, I do think on the flip, if you think about it from a future oriented perspective, indigenous communities, what they're experiencing, whether at a super micro level within a family, at the community level, and certainly at like the larger national level, like indigenous communities are at the front line of all of the effects and consequences of the way that our society, especially the West is like actually handing out, (laughs) handing out, meeting out, profoundly destructive ways. And so like indigenous communities are basically, those stories are coming from that experience. And so for the rest of the country in this context, say to, to not pay attention to that is, is to deny kind of the reality that we're all facing in an immediate way and in a future oriented way. And so to me, there's like, there's actually a vested interest on the part of the rest of the country to pay attention, not because somebody said you should care about this issue or like native people deserve to be listened to too. And so obligatorily, you're gonna like go over and say, okay, native person, let me hear your story. But because the kinds of stories that native people are telling are actually reflective of something that really really does affect everybody. And so to like omit it is not just because we don't want to hear another sad story of the victimization of some, you know, poor brown people, but actually because there's a real relevance to the rest of us. So w- why not why not have those stories be a part of the conversation? Yeah. Yeah, Lena?
0: I I just really want to throw out there that we've been doing indigenous media f- by indigenous people for indigenous people since the turn of the century. All the first newspapers were started in the 1800s. Um, on lots of reservations in their language. We're going to continue doing these stories till the end of uh, time or (laughs) in the future. And I think that it's really important to me to get stories right and to kind of understand those subtleties with history and governance and law and customs. It might take the mainstream a long time in order to get that kind of education informed, but I think we're doing it really well for our own people and we're doing it for the right reasons. And that's sort of what keeps me going is like doing it for the right reasons, so...
2: Thank you. And Wabgishik?
5: Yeah, I I think it's important to remember that even just two generations ago, uh, Indigenous people were taught that their existence and their stories were invalid, that they weren't legitimate. And that's ongoing today in a lot of ways. So I think it's important for Canadians to recognize that. And I think the onus is on everybody to allow Indigenous people to speak their truths and allow their experiences to flourish um, before we even get to, to this concept of reconciliation.
2: Everyone, that's all the time we have. I just want to say one more time, I'm really honored and uh, want to thank you very much for all the efforts you made to, to be here, to prepare for this, to talk with me. Uh, it's, it's a real privilege. Thank you very much. Well, Alan. Hey, hey, thank you.
0: Teksinin.
2: Jimmy Glutch. Jimmy Just a quick reminder, if you're curious to actually read the stories we talked about today, to check out the journalism from our panelists, the storytelling the podcasts, all of those links are up on our website at canadalandshow.com. And that is your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. The website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com canadaland Canada Land. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. The next episode of Shortcuts will be online Thursday. I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like Canada Land,
5: please support it.